Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Frank Volak, who is Professor of Commodity Price Studies in the Economics Department, Director of the Program on Energy and Sustainable Development, and Co-Director of the Natural Gas Initiative at Stanford University. Professor Volak has worked on the design and regulatory oversight of the electricity markets internationally uh, throughout Europe, Australia, Asia, Latin America, and Africa. Uh, he was also a member of the Emissions Market Advisory Committee, EMAC, that advised the California Air Resources Board on the design and monitoring of the state's cap and trade market for greenhouse gas emissions. Welcome, Frank. Well, thank you. I want to start with one of your recent papers, uh, an experimental comparison of carbon pricing under uncertainty in electricity markets, in which you say we report on an economic experiment that compares uh, outcomes in electricity markets subject to carbon tax and cap and trade policies. Uh, under conditions of uncertainty, price-based and quantity-based policy instruments cannot be fully equivalent. So we compare three matched carbon tax, uh, cap and trade uh, pairs with equivalent emissions targets, mean emissions and mean carbon prices respectively. Uh, I had done some work in this area, Frank, long time ago, but I have forgotten most of it. <laughs> so, uh, so the cap and trade is, uh, it's a mechanism that uh, electricity producers uh, can um, get capped how much carbon they can release. And if they, if they release more than that, they have to essentially take that and trade with somebody who's more efficient or maybe using different uh, technologies, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, I guess I would say the big issue is, is how you set the price of carbon. Under a carbon tax, you're effectively setting the price. Under a cap and trade mechanism, you're setting the quantity and you're letting the price essentially be the level that clears the market for allowances uh, to that uh, that equal the, the emissions and equal the amount of allowances that you have. And um, and in in a world of perfect certainty. 
um, those two outcomes should be the same, meaning you set the price and you will get a certain quantity of emissions. And if you set that quantity of emissions in equilibrium, you will get that, that same price. But once you uh, allow for the fact that there's uncertainty or imperfect information, those two outcomes can differ. And, and that was really the purpose of uh, our experiment was to try to understand, is there something we can learn from um, the difference in these two mechanisms? And it turned out that at least uh, there was. Okay, so, so these are two alternative uh, mechanisms. So carbon tax is um, sort of um, a, a um, overall tax being imposed on carbon, uh, whereas cap and trade is a bit like a market mechanism for, for trading carbon, right? Right, so, but of course, subject to an overall cap on aggregate emissions. That's the, yeah. big, the big thing. Uh, subject to an overall cap on the aggregate emission. So, um, so how does it work? In a, do we have cap and trade implemented in the U.S. anywhere? Oh uh, yeah, the California has a cap and trade market on greenhouse gas emissions. That was what the emissions market assessment committee that I served on. We were we assisted in the design of that market. There is an overall cap on carbon emissions from electricity, transportation industrial processes and natural uh, gas consumption um, in, in, in California. And um, you can trade these carbon allowances across these covered sectors um, in, in, in to uh, subject to, of course, the overall cap on emissions. So how is, how is that divided, uh, divided up between producers of electricity? So if, you, if the objective is to keep aggregate emissions to some level, you have to take that and then um, and then kind of divvy it up to different producers, right? How does it work? Well, there's a variety of ways you can do it. Um, one of the ways is you can do what's called allocate the allowances initially. That is effectively the same thing as giving all of the market participants uh, uh, free money, if you like, because you're giving them something that will turn out to be extremely valuable, which is an allowance. The other way it works, and in, in certainly the way that most economists would argue, is that you would do what's called an auction. And you, in that, you would simply auction off the allowances, and the entities that bid the highest and uh, win the allowances. And then that revenues associated with the sale of those allowances goes to the government, to presumably reduce uh, other sources of, uh, you know, taxation or other kinds of things, but that's the, those are the two sort of approaches, and there are a number of hybrids in between where some allowances are allocated, other allowances are auctioned. Uh, typically, the ones that are allocated are, at least in California, they're allocated to uh, sectors of the California economy that are thought to face uh, very vigorous import competition. Uh, sectors that don't face a lot of import competition, say, such as electricity, um, they're expected to purchase the allowances through auction. Okay, so one would imagine the auction process is more efficient than having some sort of ad hoc allocation. Yeah, but the, the, the important thing to remember is that's just the initial auction. And then people are, that's the, if you like, that's the cap part where we 
uh, uh, allocate all the allowances out to the cap, up to the cap level. And then the trade is, is when people uh, trade these allowances among themselves uh, in, 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 you know, in an attempt to um, you know, realize value. So for example, um, you know, it'd, be very, it'd be very easy for someone to buy a lot of allowances at auction with no intention of actually using those allowances for compliance, but they buy them at auction simply because they get what they believe to be a very attractive price, meaning a very low price, a price that they can then, um, it's going to be less than what they can subsequently sell those allowances for. Hmm. And so how would you treat the, um, you know, kind of the green uh, power producers like solar or wind in this context? Well, they don't have to buy allowances because they don't produce greenhouse gas emissions. That's the whole idea behind carbon pricing is that, you're making electricity from a brown source, uh, brown being fossil fuel or something that produces greenhouse gases. You're making it more expensive, which is making, therefore, the relative attractiveness of the green source uh, greater. Okay, so so the, the goal here is to make it more expensive for dirty, let's call it dirty producers, and that would bring um, bring the overall production to a, a more optimum level. Uh, so, the, uh, is there is there any attempt to give um, a higher higher advantage in any way for the the, the green uh, producers? Like, I don't know, a, a sort of a negative <laughs> negative uh, price or something like that. Is uh, but they're just left alone in the system. Well, in a cap-and-trade program, no, but um, many countries and many jurisdictions have what are called renewable portfolio standards. So California has a renewable portfolio standard, which mandates that a certain fraction of the electricity that consumers, uh, uh, that retailers uh, give to their, uh, sell to their final consumers, must come from what are called qualified renewable resources. And so that would be a way... Uh, to provide support because in in this case we create another product which is called a renewable energy certificate mm -hmm. and this renewable energy certificate is produced jointly with um, the electricity that you produce from a renewable resource so for example if i produce one megawatt hour from a qualified renewable facility a facility that the regulator designates as qualified to sell a rec then i get to i essentially through that action I produce one rec, and that renewable energy certificate uh, can then be used by a retailer for compliance with the RPS. So, for example, if the renewable portfolio standard is 30% um, and my demand is 10, that means that I have to have three recs um, to surrender uh, it, it, because of the fact that uh, 30 that's 30% of my uh, energy that I supply to my consumers, uh, I need to have sufficient renewable energy certificates. And that's what's going to then provide the economic signal for more renewable energy to be produced. Okay, so um, so every producer then have to keep some sort of a ratio between non-renewables and renewables? No, no. Um, it's uh, typically done... It most most of the places it's typically done to the retailer. So the retailer must uh, have a certain fraction of the energy they supply to their customers coming from these qualified renewable facilities. 
yeah. that is that that's um, that's the way that it typically works. Although there are a few jurisdictions that do uh, impose it on the producers, but for the most part, it is it is on r retailers in the sense that they need to purchase a certain fraction from these resources. Okay, okay. And so going back to the paper, so so what did you find uh, when, when you looked at carbon tax as a policy and cap and trade as another possible policy? What did you find between the two? Well, what we found was is that um, the, the if, if you like, the downstream disruption, meaning in the electricity supply industry, um, and the uh, impact on uh, outcomes in the electricity supply industry were far more adversely impacted uh, by the presence of the cap-and-trade mechanism versus the carbon tax uh, mechanism. And that's largely because under a carbon tax, uh, you could think of it as that the price of carbon is nothing different from the price of natural gas or the price of any other input that the um, generator is uh, having to purchase in order to produce its output. So if I'm a generator and I produce uh, one ton of uh, carbon per megawatt hour, that just says I need to buy or pay um, you know, uh, the price of one ton of carbon uh, to the government for each uh, ton of each uh, megawatt hour of electricity I produce, so it, it very much gets treated just like an input uh, to production with a known publicly observable price. Whereas with the cap and trade market, the the what the big issue becomes with under uncertainty is what is the right price of carbon to clear uh, the market for the finite amount of allowances that exists. And when you have uncertainty, and in, in, the, in our, our um, experiment, the uncertainty was the fact that demand for electricity could be different, as well as the fact that the output of the renewable resources uh, was uncertain, so that the amount of electricity that needed to be supplied from the uh, generators that produce carbon was also uncertain. So what you had was, you know, all of the players attempting to sort of figure out, well, what is the right price of carbon? And the interesting thing about markets is, is that market prices in the electricity industry or any other industry typically get set by the highest cost producer necessary uh, to serve demand. And um, so what you get is the, if you like, the entity with the most pessimistic uh, sorts of forecasts about the price of carbon uh, sets the price, which means you're setting a price of electricity that's much, much higher because that individual has the very pessimistic price of carbon. The ones with less uh, pessimistic prices, their offers are lower than the uh, offer, the highest offer that's accepted to serve demand. So it, what we get is significantly higher uh, 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 market clearing prices for electricity, higher profits for generators um, in the cap and trade uh, versus uh, for the carbon tax. Mm. Um, so, so this is the California market specifically, right? So, do, do you think this were these observations could be different uh, in different markets? Uh, I don't think so, given that, um, you know, we're, this is what this, the, the, the people that are playing, it's we're, we're doing an experiment with students and 
the good news is there are many of most of them are Stanford students, and there are Stanford students from all over the world. So um, you know, and we uh, give them strong incentives to try to make as much money in our game as possible. We we effectively tie the payments in our in our game uh, to um, the um, uh, to the actual payments that we give them in real dollars. So um, I mean, I think this is. Uh, a pretty standard uh, is likely to be fairly uh, a robust result just because of the mechanism that I described in the sense that with the carbon tax, it's pretty much just like the price of any other input you buy. Whereas with cap and trade, you, you have this issue of uh, tremendous disagreement among players and for good reason about the actual right price of carbon because the right price of carbon depends upon the evolution of things in the future that no player knows. Mm. And, and uncertainty, as you mentioned, um, I would imagine this will also reduce investments. Yeah, that's the, that's the, 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 the um, one of the things I make students in my courses on environmental economics repeat every single day is the goal of climate policy is a stable, predictable price of carbon into the distant future, because that's what's going to get people to invest in green as opposed to brown uh, sources of energy. If the price of um, carbon is extremely volatile, um, you know, that's not a good signal for people to uh, decide to invest in green versus brown because it could be the case that that price of carbon, you know, goes through the floor. It's sort of like the issue that we have in the United States with the price of gasoline is that it, it at least historically, has been very volatile. And so, you know, when, when the price of gasoline in California is $5, yes, people would like to buy that electric vehicle or they drive the very fuel-efficient car they own, but then the price crashes down to probably $2 a gallon, and, you know, they they, they drive the less fuel-efficient car. They buy the bigger gasoline-powered vehicle. You want that stable price of, if you like, uh, that's going to cause them to say, no, I'm not going to buy that very fuel-inefficient car uh, because I know the price is never going to get below, you know, some level to make that worth my while. So, so I want to go into uh, another paper that you have in this area entitled Expecting the Unexpected, Emissions Uncertainty and Environmental Market Design. Uh, you say that uh, we study potential equilibria in California's cap and trade market for greenhouse gases based on information available before the market started. And you say we find large ex-ante uncertainty in business as usual emissions and in the abatement that might result from non-market policies. So, so, so this is uh, sort of the same, uh, same finding, right, uh, as we were discussing before? Yeah, I, I guess the way that I would say it is, is that the um, part of the motivation for uh, doing the experiment that we just discussed was the results of this research. So as part of the um, Emissions Market Assessment Committee, we were asked to do a sort of stress test of the California market. Um, and that the paper that, 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 I, that you just discussed, described was, was the result. And the, the basic idea that we wanted to explore in that paper was, you know, what would be you know, the likely um, 
uh, you know, uh, the distribute, if you like, the distribution of prices we might likely see in the California market. And one of the big things that we wanted to emphasize to uh, the California Air Resources Board was the necessity for a price floor and a price ceiling. Um, and so a, a big motivation for, for us in that work was to, um, to try to explore what would happen in a world that you did not have a price floor and a price ceiling. And hence, with the tremendous amount of uncertainty in uh, what we call business as usual emissions, easy way to think of business as usual emissions is you have a cap and trade program that's going to last for, in the case of California, uh, from 2013 to 2020, um, you know, the economy could boom, the economy could, uh, could uh, have a recession. Uh, the one thing we know is that uh, emissions are very highly correlated with the level of economic activity, as well as, say, price of gasoline, uh, price of electricity, other kinds of things like that. And so what we wanted, we looked at was to say, okay, looking at the uh, possible distribution of business as usual emissions over that uh, time period, um, what would that imply about the distribution of prices? And what we found was that for the most part, um, there were that the, the, the most of the, if you like, probability mass, meaning most likely prices would be extremely low prices, prices at or below the price floor, um, and, and maybe in a potentially small probability of prices above the, the price ceiling, but very little uh, probability that prices would be in that intermediate range between the price floor and price ceiling. So that the with the argument being is that this is you know look this is why California, as we said, needs a you know price floor because it's very likely to end up at the price floor. And 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 and, and as, and as a consequence of this research, we sort of said, well, gee this looks like a general feature of virtually all cap and trade markets. And sure enough, um, if you look at the European Union emissions trading system, if you look at um, the REGI regional greenhouse gas initiative on the Eastern United States, in all these cases, the prices uh, are, are very volatile and typically uh, end up at the floor. In the case of Europe, they're extremely low because there isn't any price floor in Europe except for obviously zero. Yeah, I mean, so, so it's, uh, if I understand this correctly, Frank, you know, the cap and trade creates a lot of volatility, a lot of uncertainty. And so, uh, you know, bringing a floor and a ceiling reduces that, uh, but it sort of impedes then um, with, the, you know, <laughs> with the original design from a market perspective, right? Well, I, I, would, I wouldn't say so. I mean, um, the, 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 uh, the, the one thing that I think that we can be pretty assured of, the way that I like to explain it to people is the one thing that we know about the social cost of carbon is that it's extremely uncertain. And the only thing we know with certainty is, is it's positive. And so the basic point is, you know, what we're trying to do is, is, is as much as possible reduce emissions. And you could argue that if what you're doing with a price floor is you're, you're basically saying that, look, um, and the way that you would implement a price floor in a cap and trade mechanism 
in the way it is done in, in, in California is you just don't issue, you only sell allowances at or above the floor price. So you're you're taking advantage of the fact that you did a little bit better than you thought you would in terms of um, uh, allow, uh, emissions reductions. And so you don't need to issue as much allowances. And then at the top end, if, if you mess up and it turns out that uh, you actually have a lot of emissions more than you thought, then what you would do to enforce the price ceiling is you would issue additional uh, allowances to, to essentially make sure the price can't go above that level. I think in, in my view, I think that's being consistent with the primary goal of, a, uh, uh, of climate policy that we just discussed, which is a stable, predictable price of carbon into the distant future. You're basically telling everyone here is where the price of carbon is going to be in the future. And, it, you know, to the extent you can make that, that uh, range smaller, so much the better. But hopefully you're getting, you know, uh, the sorts of investments that you'd like to see. Right, right, right. right. Frank, we'll Frank, take a, we'll quick, take a break. quick break. Um, um, we'll come back, we'll, come back, we'll, talk, we'll about talk about the wholesale market and transmission planning. Okay, sure. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. You were talking about uh, the different uh, ways to uh, limit carbon in the electricity production process, um, carbon tax, cap and trade. Uh, cap and trade could have other features um, in that policy as well. Um, you have also done a lot of work in sort of the market design of, of electricity uh, production, transmission and consumption. Um, before we get into the papers, Frank, if you could you know, sort of explain uh, at least in the U.S., how the market works. So, so there is a there is an electricity producer, there is an electricity consumer. In between those two, there are at least uh, two intermediation. Right, one is called wholesale market, and the other is called the retail market. And one problem with electricity, I guess, is that it's not a storable commodity, so that creates. Uh, set of um, set of problems uh, with that market. So, at least in the U.S., how is this market set up today? Yeah. So, I mean, it's probably it's probably useful to talk a little about history. So, historically, the electricity supply industry around the world was what was called a vertically integrated monopoly, and what this meant was that um, you had a single firm, the monopoly. Uh, providing the four phases of electricity production, which would be generation, transmission at high voltage, uh, distribution at lower voltage. So think of like um, the uh, interstate highway system is transmission. The local roads in the city is the distribution grid. And then the final segment is retailing. So one entity was responsible for all that. And Right around in the uh, late 1990s, um, as probably most notably starting in the United Kingdom, 
um, but also in Latin America, got out a little bit earlier on some of this in, in Chile, um, they, uh, the idea was to say, well, gee, we think that segments of this industry can actually be opened up to competition. And the way that we can do that is by uh, operating the transmission and distribution grid as kind of as open access facilities, meaning that any individual that would like can access these facilities to essentially deliver electricity to the grid. And any individual entity that would like can withdraw that electricity from the grid and sell uh, to final consumers as com uh, retailers. So the, the idea grid was- itself, grid itself is owned by the government? Uh, no, the grid the grid can still be owned by uh, a, 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 a at least in the United States the grids are still owned by privately owned profit maximizing firms, mm -hmm. but they are subject to regulation. So the price of uh, that you pay to access and use the grid is is set by the regulator, but the price that you uh, effectively um, uh, pay to a generator to inject electricity into the grid. That is determined through a, you know, uh, essentially a competitive process, a, a, a auction mechanism, a very complex auction mechanism. And then the, the prices that uh, you pay for retail electricity in regions with retail competition is determined, again, by, um, you know, competitive competition between retailers uh, to purchase the electricity from the grid and, and sell it uh, to you. Uh, and uh, in the process, paying to use the distribution network to to do it, but playing paying that regulated price, and so that's the the the, the structure is transitioned to early on. An early adopter of this uh, model in the United States was was California, uh, uh, but also soon to follow was a region called PJM, which is Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Maryland in the eastern United States, and this. This sort of uh, formal wholesale market mechanism has spread uh, almost throughout the country. There's one in um, the state of New York, in the New England states, in uh, uh, Texas, the mid, mid Midwest. There's just a few parts of the United States where the vertically integrated monopolies still exist. Um, and the important thing about this um, wholesale market mechanism is that um, electricity, if, if as an as an economist, if you thought about all of the product characteristics that would make having a competitive market difficult, you would go, okay, um, what I want is I want a product that's not storable. I want a product that is subject, whose production is subject to capacity constraints, meaning that you can't produce more than a certain amount of this product in any time interval. Um, I want delivery through some specialized uh, network so that um, you know someone else uh, can't uh, uh, compete with me. Uh, I want a face of demand that's very inelastic. I mean, all of the characteristics that make competition very difficult to have, uh, they come up in uh, electricity uh, because all those features that I just described uh, characterize electricity. So. The challenge of, of setting up a competitive market is 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 quite been quite extreme, but it, it is a, and it is an opportunity to use both the 
tools of uh, economics, uh, as well as uh, power systems engineer, you're sort of marrying those two things. And so um, to in working in this area, you need to be uh, have an understanding of both. And if you don't, you will design a market that is not going to work very well. Yeah, so um, from a societal perspective, you have sort of two objectives, right? One is to uh, tactically, you want uh, demand to be satisfied by supply, uh, but strategically you want capacity increasing with an expected growth um, uh, in demand. So, so, so how do you accomplish these objectives uh, given, given you know, some of the problems that you mentioned? Yeah, I mean, a, 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 a big issue with electricity markets is the fact of what I think you're referring to is what we call an electricity, <clears throat> excuse me, long-term resource adequacy in the sense that how do we ensure that there will be sufficient capacity to meet demand in the future in all possible uh, future demand uh, levels? and under the old vertically, <coughs> excuse me, integrated monopoly, you would just say to the monopoly, you know, please make sure to keep the lights on all the time and I will pay you a certain amount of money uh, that's set by the regulator per kilowatt hour that I consume and you will, as a monopoly, ensure that happens. With a market for electricity, we're in pretty good shape in terms of how do we actually operate the system, but figuring out how to get sufficient generation capacity built uh, to keep up with demand growth ha has certainly been a challenge. Uh, and there have been a variety of mechanisms that have been put in place. Um, and, you know, it, 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 some work better than others. Yeah. Yeah, so so there is a capacity question, and increasingly there is a sort of a portfolio optimization question, right? You you want uh, renewables, um, and you uh, you know you want like, like we discussed before the aggregate carbon to be set to some limit, and all these generation capacities have different characteristics. Some of them are not really predictable, and so. So, so in a in a market mechanism, uh, how do we accomplish all of this today? Um, so, you said the grid is uh, privately owned. The distribution system is privately owned. Um, there are wholesale wholesalers of electricity, retail uh, retailers of electricity, and they can essentially plug and play into the transmission grid and the distribution grid. Um, that would be a very uh, sort of uh, simplified way of thinking about it. I mean, the big issue is is that you know to site and bring online even you know a power plant um, is going to take you at least from you know the conception to actual construction probably two years. I mean, it is you have to do what's called a generation interconnection uh, agreement. You, you know, you then have to, you know, then you get the site, then you uh, actually build your power plant. So it, it, you know, it's, this is not a market that can move very fast given the magnitude of the facilities that you're, you're building. But yeah, that is the idea. The idea is that 
um, you know, you can locate your generation unit where you want to, subject to the availability of transmission. Um, and, um, and then you just, you're free to compete in this market uh, with other suppliers to sell your power on the wholesale market. Similarly, for electricity retailers, you can enter and essentially compete with other retailers to sell uh, retail electricity to final consumers. Um, you know, by purchasing the electricity from uh, the wholesale market, but also entering into hedging arrangements with generators or other entities to uh, get the best possible price you can for the electricity that you're actually going to deliver to your customer. So, I mean, it's it. What it does is it it this this setting up this market. I, I the way I like to describe it is market mechanisms are like fire in the sense that, you know, properly managed, uh, they can, you know, heat your home and, you know, give you light to read by, but improperly managed, they can burn your house down. And it's the same thing with market mechanisms in, in that, you know, this is, this is a, you know, a, a, a very complex process and uh, the world is littered with examples and continues to be littered with examples of, uh, jurisdictions that ignore the lessons from other jurisdictions or just the lessons from, you know, economic research and uh, power systems engineering research and create markets that, that can cause significant costs and harm to their populations. Yeah. I don't know where the technology is, Frank, um, but, you know, clearly we haven't gotten room temperature superconductivity. Transmission losses, if I remember correctly, was about 30%. And so central uh, generation and transmission is not necessarily a very efficient way of doing it. Um, oh, it is. I mean, technic you're, you're talking about both technical and non-technical losses. I mean, yeah. in the United States, just to give you a contrast, at most, we're losing probably in the transmission network, you know, less than, you know, 5%. Hmm. And, and then in the distribution grid, uh, again, probably less than 5% uh, of the electricity. So, uh, it, it, you know, it is an extremely efficient way. And then the economies to scale associated with grid scale facilities are, are significant and even more so for renewables. So, for example, you know, solar panels on my roof are probably producing electricity at what's called a levelized cost of about, you know, 12 cents a kilowatt hour. Whereas the solar facility in the middle of the desert in Southern California is probably pro is producing electricity using solar panels again uh, at roughly uh, half that amount, say, you know, six cents per uh, kilowatt hour. So there are significant economies to scale associated with uh, grid scale uh, generation resources, particularly for uh, renewables as as well as obviously for you know conventional thermal resources as well so um, you know but the big problem is just uh, to, for transmission is building transmission that is uh, very challenging in the United States to do that for environmental reasons it's not necessarily for cost reasons no one wants to see transmission lines across their properties anymore Right, right. Yeah, well, what I was thinking, though, uh, Frank, I want to get your perspective on this. So if I am a big consumer of electricity, um, I have, you know, big um, <coughs> excuse me, uh, data servers, 
um, that I'm maintaining, at some point I could decide uh, to have a generation capability. Maybe it's concentrating solar or something along those lines and take me off the grid, uh, me meaning this large company that, that is a big consumer of electricity. And if, if that is possible, then um, we will have a little bit of a, a fracture in the market, right? Are you anticipating things like that to happen? Um, that is very unlikely, at least in the U.S. Now, in, in places like, you know, developing countries, um, you know, India would be a good example. That happens primarily because of the lack of reliability of the, um, you know, bulk grid. But in the United States the, and, and Europe and the like, the, the grid is extremely reliable in the sense that there is very rare that there are transmission level outages. Uh, and so nobody, even though I might have on-site generation, um, uh, for the most part, I'm only using that as, as in a backup in extreme conditions. And no one, for the most part, ever disconnects from the grid simply because it is, you know, it's, a, it's far more expensive than what you can get uh, from, from the grid. And then the other is, is that if you, if you do have a very cheap resource that you have, there may be times when you don't consume at all and you would like the option to be able to sell your excess power back to the grid. And if you disconnected from the grid, you would be unable to do that. And similarly, you know, if it turns out that grid supplied electricity is cheaper than the electricity you can produce yourself, you would probably prefer to do that rather than to uh, uh, consume from your own resource. So for the most part in the United States, yes, there are companies that do have uh, what are typically often referred to as on-site generation uh, but or co-generation, but they typically are connected and they are participants in the wholesale market for the reasons that I just described. Yeah, yeah. So so given the competitive landscape in the U.S., um, are we... Are we in a in a good good position in terms of uh, investments into transmission and generation? Are we are we getting sort of optimum investments in those areas? That's a, that's that's the uh, that's that's an extremely difficult question. I, I it, it's you know it's it, because I mean it 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 it, it um, you know it requires sort of what is optimal and. The, the big point that I would make in terms of thinking about, and it, one of the uh, points that I try to make is, um, in the language of economics, uh, we are in what's called a second best world. And what a second best world means is that we don't, we, we can't necessarily, you know, it's, it, it, I guess the way I would describe it is, is that we're, we're not a social planner. And so what we can and we can't and we don't have perfect information. So it's very difficult for us to implement uh, what would be, if you like, the efficient solution, assuming that we have perfect uh, information and perfect foresight about the future. But what what it what it means is that it, it, in terms of the world we're actually living in is the way I like to explain it is we have the choice between an imperfectly competitive market and an imperfectly regulated industry. And the vertically integrated regime was an imperfectly regulated industry, 
the wholesale market is an imperfectly uh, uh, imperfectly competitive market. And transmission uh, serves a very different role in those two worlds, which means that you could potentially have very different, if you like, optimal transmission planning policies for the vertically integrated regime uh, versus the wholesale market regime. To just take a very simple uh, description, uh, a transmission upgrade in the vertically integrated regime re increases, if you like, the uh, 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 you know, can can essentially improve this perfect, imperfectly, uh, imperfect regulatory process by the fact that you're reducing the cost, hopefully, that the vertically integrated utility incurs to serve its demand. Whereas in the wholesale market regime, the transmission expansion has a very different impact in the sense that what transmission does is it increases the number of firms that can compete against me to supply electricity. So take the extreme example of if the transmission network was the sort of virtual copper plate, meaning that wherever I connected my generation unit, all the power that I wanted could flow out of it to final demand. Um, that's not possible, obviously, but by upgrading the transmission network, you're increasing the likelihood that that model is, is true and therefore facing uh, entities with greater competition. Hmm. Um, so, the if we introduce Frank sort of central storage mechanisms, let's say pumped um, storage or perhaps some new technology in batteries or whatever, if possible, uh, will that substantially change the way that the markets work today? Uh, uh, no, there are already uh, storage resources in a number of the markets uh, around the world. So, for example, Australia has a number of pump storage units uh, uh, in the Snowy Mountain area and has large batteries in South Australia. The, uh, the Tesla battery uh, that is there. California has large pump storage facilities up in the uh, northern part of the state. Um, and, and these uh, entities participate in the wholesale market. They, and then we also have a significant number of batteries in uh, capacity in California. And, you know, their game is buy power cheap and, and fill the dam or fill the battery and then withdraw the power when the price of power is expensive. Or another thing that they do is they'll sell what's called operating reserves, which are mean they're doing things like maintaining the frequency in the grid um, at the at the appropriate uh, uh, 60 cycles or 50 cycles, depending on the country. Um, and you know that's the sort of thing that uh, that that they do. So uh, they they currently participate in the markets around the world. Wouldn't there be sort of a cat and mouse game between the generator and the and the storage company? Uh, I mean, it, put it this way, um, it, it can, you know, once you install storage, I mean, it, 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 the, the, how storage participates to make the most money is a far from non-trivial uh, problem. In, in the yeah. uh, game that we described earlier, uh, we actually have introduced storage units into the game for uh, the players in the game. and. 
what we found is um, the, the students when they play it, it, uh, it, it is it is very challenging because you always have to think of well, is this the right time for me to fill my resource? Is this the right time to discharge my resource? And you are right that to the extent that you get it wrong, that can have effects on the uh, generation resources that are in the system and reduce the price that they receive or increase the price they receive. But either way, certainly make it more challenging for them to participate. Yeah. And, and of course, in markets like this, you can in introduce uh, financial instruments like forwards and futures uh, to make it more, more efficient. You have, a, you, you have a case study here from Singapore. Um, what, is, uh, what is different in, this, uh, in the system in Singapore? Uh, the system in Singapore, at least currently, um, is is not much different from what exists in the United States. It's just that um, there the this this project was part of a project I did for the regulator in in in, in Singapore, the Energy Market Authority, and um, you know the 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 the, the big advantage of uh, uh, what that project, at least to me showed is the tremendous benefits that they realized from uh, setting up and, and fostering a liquid forward market for electricity. And, and, and that's simply because um, the, the short-term price in Singapore is quite volatile because they are a, a thermal uh, electricity, meaning most of their electricity is produced from natural gas and and uh, they have volatile prices. And so the uh, presence of this financial market uh, has two benefits. First, it allows a potential entrant into electricity retailing to purchase a, a purely excuse me, purely financial hedge against future wholesale prices and compete against the firms that own generation units to sell retail electricity. And so, therefore, we get a benefit on the retail side. And then the fact that these, these um, hedges have been sold and are typically held by the generation unit owners um, to the counterparties to the hedges that are sold to these purely financial retailers, the fact that they have these hedges makes them behave more competitively in the short-term market, reduce price volatility, reduce average wholesale prices. So... Um, the, the big key uh, takeaway, at least from that research, is, is that in a market such as electricity, which is really a just-in-time market, meaning you got to meet demand and supply at every instant in time, you want to have virtually all of your uh, demand hedged. And if you do, the market will perform much better for consumers. Right, right. Yeah, yeah so it sounds to me, right. Frank, that our system... It's pretty good. It's set up pretty well. What would you do? Uh, where can we improve? Where do you think the risks are, and where uh, the you know possibilities for improvements are in the in the whole whole system? Well, I mean, to me, the uh, big area that's most interesting to me is the idea that uh, what we talked about earlier as as we scale up the amount of renewables, we have a number of features that are going to make these markets. I mean, I guess the way that I'd say it, it would be is in a world in which we have thermal resources, the set of feasible designs that are going to work okay, 
uh, is much, much greater than it is when what we have is a bunch of intermittent wind solar resources mm. on the system. And what we're trying to do is keep the lights on 24 seven in a world in which solar can disappear at a moment's notice, wind can disappear at a moment's notice, uh, batteries can, can essentially run out of juice. You know, so many more uh, operating constraints and challenges. Uh, and so the set of uh, markets that are going to feasibly go badly wrong goes way up and the set that can work pretty well uh, becomes much smaller and making sure that your market is headed in the direction of the markets that can actually work with a large share of renewables uh, is what all the regions, California, I know Singapore is interested in transitioning to uh, a much uh, more renewable heavy market in most of the markets around the world. So that's the big, to me, challenge and where a lot of the, my recent research is in terms of what needs to be done to, to adapt to that. Yeah, so so how will that look like um, in the future, Frank, from your perspective? So suppose, you know, the pressure to go to renewables is continuous and we have to ultimately take out all fossil fuel generated power production out. Uh, that that uh, leaves uh, some nuclear base loads and then wind and solar and storage. If, if that were the case, how, how will it look like in the future? Well, certainly short-term prices will be, should, should, should be much more volatile. And the second should be is uh, folks should be, it, 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 it really is, we need many more uh, financial instruments uh, in the market to allow people to hedge uh, their, their risks that they face. So let's take a simple example is, um, you know, I would like to finance a battery investment. A battery requires a large upfront payment to install the battery, say, but once I install the battery, I make my money off the buy low, sell high strategy. Well, I am a solar resource. If I have sold, say, forward a, a, a certain amount of energy each hour of the day at a fixed price, I face a significant uh, quantity risk on my ability to deliver that amount of energy um, in, um, in, that, in that hour uh, from my own resource. So what I might do is approach, say, a battery supplier and say, I would like insurance against price spikes during certain hours of the day. I will pay you, a battery owner, a large upfront payment to provide me with insurance against prices in the short-term market during certain hours of the day going above a certain level. And what the battery owner does is operates their battery to ensure that that doesn't happen so that it can keep as much as the money that it has got in that upfront payment that was used to finance the battery investment. And so it, that's just one example of this sort of cross-hedging that needs to take place between resources because of the uncertainty that all of them face. Whereas in the former regime, uh, with a dispatchable, you know, natural gas fire generation unit or coal fire generation unit, you, you didn't really have to worry about the fact that these units could disappear without notice. For the most part, you know, that 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 happened with you know forced outages, but it wasn't 
with the frequency or the duration uh, that, that you see with wind and solar. Is there any country, Frank, um, in EU or Scandinavia or anywhere that is closer to all renewable, including, uh, including nuclear? Uh, nuclear is not really renewable, but at least it's not fossil. Well, the two places that have quite a bit are, you know, Australia has a large share of distributed renewables. So they're sort of doing it at the distribution level with rooftop solar. California is very uh, big. So, you know, California is currently above 33% uh, uh, renewables. Uh, Texas is at a comparable uh, level in terms of at least the amount of renewables production. Um, and most of that's coming from wind. Uh, smaller countries that are doing quite a bit would be uh, Denmark and Norway. Norway is uh, virtually all hydro. Uh, Denmark is very large wind. But, you know, those are both fairly small countries located within a larger uh, grid that has a lot of fossil fuel uh, generation. Um, uh, you know, like, for example, next to Denmark is Germany. Germany has quite a bit of coal uh, still left in its system. But uh, a, a lot of places are, 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 you know, scaling up pretty quickly uh, uh, the amount of renewables. California, I think, is certainly uh, very ambitious in its goals. And, uh, uh, you know, it has a goal of at least uh, 50% uh, by uh, 2030. So uh, uh, stand by. <laughs> um, and, the, and the solar photovoltaic um, production is still driven by subsidies, right? We, have, we are nowhere close to making it stand, stand on its own. Um, there, I mean, it's, it's getting, I mean, the big, the big issue is, is if you look at it on what's called a levelized cost basis, um, yes. you can make, you know, there's there, the, the solar without subsidies versus say a natural gas fired generation unit without subsidies. Uh, it's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty close, but the, the important difference is, is that remember the solar facility provides you energy when the sun feels like it, whereas the natural gas unit provides you with generation when you want it. And so, you know, comparing those two average or levelized costs is not exactly a fair comparison because one is energy when you want it and the other is energy when it feels like it. And you probably want energy when you want it. And so, you know, how much more that differential is to account for that. Uh, if, you know, for example, if you put in solar with batteries to make the system more reliable, then yes, solar with batteries cannot compete uh, with a, a dispatchable natural gas fire generation at current battery prices. But, you know, the, 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 but, but, you know, the things are getting cheaper. Yeah, yeah. Excellent, uh, excellent, Frank, thanks so much for spending time with me. Sure. Good luck with this, uh, this research. Well, thank you. Uh, enjoyed it. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to 
info at scientificsense.com.